Good evening and welcome to Solidarity on Tap. My name is Chris Kerr with the Ignatian Solidarity Network. And on behalf of everyone at ISN, as well as our national Solidarity on Tap sponsors, Jesuit Volunteer Corps, Jesuit Volunteer Corps Northwest, Jesuitical Podcast of America Media, the Jesuit School of Theology of Santa Clara University, Mary Noel Lay Missioners, and the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry. Thanks to everyone for joining us tonight. For over 15 years, the Ignatian Solidarity Network has been uniting the Ignatian family, meaning the Jesuit network, as well as those who are inspired to work for justice through the spiritual tradition of St. Ignatius of Loyola, to build a more just world through faith-based social justice formation, education, and advocacy. If you haven't already, please make sure to check out our website, ignatiansolidarity.net, and like and follow us on social media to get the latest advocacy alerts, educational resources, and much more. Now, Solidarity on Tap usually takes place in cities across the country, bringing together members of the Ignatian family. And even though we're gathering virtually tonight, the goal of Solidarity on Tap is the same, to invite people to enjoy fellowship, maybe with a drink in hand, and hear powerful reflections from members of the network engaged in work for justice. So with this in mind, I'm super excited, extremely excited, beyond excited to introduce our speaker, Sister Helen Prejean. Sister Helen is known around the world for her tireless work against the death penalty and is the founder of Ministry Against the, Ministry Against the Death Penalty. She has been instrumental in sparking national dialogue on capital punishment and in shaping the Catholic Church's, Church's vigorous opposition to all executions. She's the author of Dead Man Walking, an eyewitness account of the death penalty in the United States, which ignited a national debate on capital punishment and inspired an Academy Award-winning movie, as well as a play and an opera. Sister Helen's second book, The Death of Innocence, an eyewitness account of wrongful executions, was published in 2004. And her third book, River of Fire, My Spiritual Journey, in 2019, some other highlights that are uh, mean something special to, to the Ignatian family. In 2013, the Ignatian Solidarity Network honored Sister Helen with the Robert M. Holstein Faith Doing Justice Award uh, at an event in New Orleans, which was wonderful and a great celebration of, of her uh, work for justice. And in addition, Sister Helen has spoken numerous times uh, I, I actually am still trying to figure out how many uh, at the Ignatian Family Teaching for Justice, most recently in 2015. And I was noting to Sister Helen that that had been uh, a couple years or a few years, and we probably need to work on making sure we get her back. So, uh, so excited to welcome Sister Helen to, to be with us tonight. Sister Helen, welcome. Thanks for being here. Good to be here. Good to see you. Uh, cheers. I know that. Um, cheers. I'm drinking a, a beer, but I believe I believe you're drinking scotch. Am I right? You're absolutely right. I thought so. Scotch I was is close to Jesus. Close to Jesus. That's if, right. If they had scotch at the wedding feast at Cana, I think that's what he would have done instead of wine. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Well, it'd be easier probably to make more of it than you know scotch than wine. You I remember my, my first and only drink of scotch was with you in 2013. 
and and it was it was very good. Um, I've I've savored it now for many years. So um, thank you for that. It was a good experience for me. So <laughs> That's all you needed. You never drank it again. You I never had to do it again. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So how are you? How are you doing in the midst of uh, this very different reality that has been traveling for this a long time? This COVID thing has been a great gift in my life. Uh, it's terrible suffering in the world, but you got to know that when dead men. In 1993, it was like a tsunami. The book took off, there was the movie, there was the opera, and I started getting on the road to get out and educate the American people on the death penalty, starting in 93. And I needed a really big permission to get off the road, because I have witnessed the execution of six human beings and seen the horror and torture of that. So. I have a moral imperative to get out and tell the story to the people bringing the books with me. So then COVID happens. So March 12th, here I am at University of Colorado in Boulder with my friend, Mike Radlett, who wrote the first book on innocent people on death row. He's a sociologist. And I go to his class with him at eight o'clock in the morning. And he says to the class, this is the last time we meet face to face, came back to New Orleans on March 12th. And I've been here ever since in my little house. I'm, I planted some flowers because I can be around to water them. I got a bird feeder and I've started on my next book. And I'm spending a lot of time Zooming on college campuses with classes. So I'm busy and I started on the next book. I'm going to do it for Arbus called Riding the Mighty River. And it's going to be meditations and stuff in my life. Um. Uh, it's, it's going to be a free-flowing book, and, and I'm looking forward to it. Just started it a couple of days ago. So here I am. Excellent. Well, we're glad, you know, um, I guess, you know, for for us, one of the graces is that, you know, you have some time to, to join us uh, on a night like this. So we're really glad to have you. And um, one of the things that I've noticed uh, about the growth of your work over the years is the way that you are utilizing social media to get out the word. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what what that allows you to do, uh, kind of being on on different platforms and the and, and the impact that that can have? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, the gospel. Just talking about the gospel, you go out and you preach the gospel, and the gospel is always about persuasion. It's never about threat or confrontation. How can you be a Christian and be for the death penalty? Call yourself a Christian. Well, that goes nowhere. So the best thing, of course, is being in a room with people personally where you can share with them. But there's a whole range out there to be present in the public discourse through social media. And I have a dynamite team, Rose Vines and Griffin Hardy. And they work with me. They know my voice. We work closely together and we track things. Right now, the big thing on our Twitter thing is what's happening to prisoners with COVID-19. And so we follow executions. We follow what happens to people uh, when there are hot spots where you have a governor that, you know, is about to execute an innocent person. And so it's just a really important part of proclaiming the gospel. It's integral to what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And it's, I mean, when you kind of pair that with, you know, typically you're, you're out speaking, right? But now you're using Zoom to get out there and, and kind of be 
with people one-to-one, but to, to kind of supplement that with, with the ongoing uh, updates and calls to action. I really appreciate the ways that you invite people to contact uh, state governors and other elected officials to, to send messages of support for folks on death row um, and things like that. So it's, it's just great. You know, uh, uh, Chris, you have these different dynamics. See, I didn't know the power of a book. I'm Cajun. I live in Louisiana. We talk to each other. You sit around a table in the backyard. You got a ball crawfish and a bead of amber beer and you talk. So I kind of thought of a book as a passive thing. You know, you quiet. Yeah, people going to bookstores and all that kind of stuff. I I just didn't know the power of a book. And Dead Man Walking, just let me ask you, just what were its chances? 1993, the hardback came out. Mm-hmm. Like, a Catholic nun, the 90s were when we executed the most people. The support for the death penalty in the United States in the 90s was national, 80%. In the Deep South, it was 90%. So what chance would a book have? And this is spirit floating over the waters, over the chaos. And here this little book gets out there and people begin to read this book. And when Susan Sarandon read Dead Man Walking, when the paperback came out, she pestered Tim Robbins, her partner, for nine months till he broke down and read the book and then did the film. He probably did it for domestic tranquility. I mean, not for his creative impulse to do a film. Just, right. oh, come on, Susan, give me a break. Get it. Yeah, get did past. You read the nun's book. Did you read the nun's book? Well, fine. <laughs> did you know her? Did you know Susan before that? No, never didn't know her. She's the one who made it happen. And she contacted me. She was doing this. Grisham film, uh, the client in Memphis, and she had to come to New Orleans to uh, film. She read the book while she was on the set in Memphis, calls me up, says, I want to meet you. We met in a restaurant. You know what I did? Because I didn't know movie stars. I rented Thelma Louise with the sisters and we looked at it so I could see what Susan looked like before she came in the restaurant. Mixed her up with Gina Davis, the whole movie. So when she walks in a restaurant, and if you know Gina Davis and and uh, Thelma Louise, I mean, she is that ditzy one doing his stupid yeah. thing. I said, thank you, Jesus. Thank God she's Louise. And we met in a restaurant and she said, we need a new kind of film that's going to bring the American public more deeply into the ambiguities and struggle in this death penalty. And Dead Man Walking was born in 1996 on the Feast of the Annunciation, March 25th. Mm. Susan gets the Academy Award. And the film was given over to the world. And I call that Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And and look at the, you know, the impact and how um, that, you know, that film is still, yeah. I know it's still at least in classrooms in Catholic school and university classrooms still used yeah, to the network. Yeah, you can get yeah, it. Absolutely. I want to do some quick shout outs to folks that have joined us. We have a great uh, crowd from across the country and beyond with us tonight. So I just want to make sure we say hi to some folks. Uh, Sarah uh, Signorino says, uh, love from Canisius College, which is in Buffalo, uh, New York. Danielle, uh, FJV and Marquette grad joining us from Burlington, Vermont. Uh, Father Rick Malloy says, yo, Chris and ISN, great stuff. Father Rick's joining us from Baltimore. Uh, he goes by Muggs uh, is, is his nickname, for those who don't know. Amanda's joining us uh, from Fairbanks, Alaska. Welcome, Amanda. Mara from St. Peter and Paul uh, Jesuit Parish in Detroit. Welcome, Mara. Pat is joining us from Arlington, Virginia, and the Ignatian Volunteer 
uh, North Virginia Region Council. Beth is joining us from Lemoyne College up in upstate New York. Uh, we've got, uh, we've got uh, let's see, Anna, who's joining us is, uh, with Marinol and joining us from Seattle. And uh, we'll get to some others in a second, but we've got a great, a great crowd. So welcome to everyone. Please make sure to keep uh, sharing uh, where you're from, share your alma mater or where you go to school. Uh, let us know if you're volunteering, if you, if you volunteered. Let us know if you heard Sister Helen speak somewhere and if you've got a question for her as well. So now, Sister Helen, this, this uh, COVID crisis, it's been, um, you know, obviously, as you pointed out, a lot of pain and suffering for many people in our world. And I, I, I think a lot about uh, men and women that are in our criminal justice uh, system that are incarcerated right now. Um, it seems like this has been um, an opportunity uh, among many to to put them at the bottom of the uh, of the rung in terms of prioritizing safety, health, uh, health care, access to care. Um, you know, I've been reading the news lately, not just here in the United States, but abroad. There's you know a number of stories that have been in the news uh, about the situation of, um, of of folks who are in the prison system. And I just want to put this up on the screen. Uh, you'll see in the upper left-hand corner story from Miami of a jail. A federal judge ordered that uh, the prisoners should have access to things like face mask and soap. But unfortunately, a uh, it was taken to the next level, appealed in, in the federal judge above uh, the initial uh, court ruling, said that actually the jail doesn't have to, you know, uh, provide those things. Um, in, in the Philippines, uh, prisoners were freed after overcrowded Philippine jails uh, became just not a safe place, but it took a really long time for people to get that. And then that image on the right-hand side comes from El Salvador, where um, in an effort to crack down on the behavior of gangs in the country, uh, and uh, their activities, um, they did sort of this kind of public humiliation uh, effort uh, in one of the prisons in the country there, uh, forcing prisoners to sit uh, like they are pictured there for uh, an extended period of time as a way of, of punishing them or publicly shaming them from, uh, for their behavior. What are some of the things that uh, you, you are seeing in terms of the situation of those who are um, currently, you know, uh, in prison, in jail, um, and, you know, how the crisis is impacting those folks? Well, you know, the first thing you want to say is that we have a, a mentality toward prisoners. You talk about social distancing. And the ultimate social distancing we do is determine that some people in our society have, have done a crime so horrendous they're not worthy to live, and we can decide that who's the worst of the worst, and that we can kill them. That's the ultimate social distancing. That's the ultimate saying, you are not human, and we can do with you whatever we decide. And then prison is the next step down of social distancing. We have images of prisoners. They're killers. They're murderers. Yeah, they say they all say they found Jesus in prison. You can't believe them. They're untrustworthy. And they killed and they could kill again. And so throw them away. Throw them away. We never want to see them again. We exile them. We cut them off from their families for long, long prison terms, even nonviolent crimes. And so we have a massive incarceration of people in this country, 2.2 million people. It's as big as our fourth largest city in the United States. 
2.2 million. And now along comes a COVID virus. And I have witnessed this so many times with prisoners I've known at Angola in Louisiana, but other prisons too. The one thing you don't want to have happen to you when you're in prison is to get sick. Because you are looked upon, you are not trusted. You are suspicious. So the big thing that you're called in prison, like if you ask to be on sick call, and I've known people that had an ache in their belly, their stomach, the digestive system, whatever, it was real pain or in their head. or And they asked to go to sick call. And immediately you're suspected of what they call malingering. You're just trying to get out of work. You got to prove to us you're really sick. And if you call for an emergency thing and we examine you and we decide it's not an emergency, you get thrown in the dungeon. So you have this huge distrust. So now when it comes to COVID-19, where is the, if they are not a caring prison with a decent warden, with decent correctional officers and people in charge to treat you like a human being, you are going to die from COVID-19. You're in an enclosed space. You're not in control of your own environment. I think that's got to be one of the hardest things about being in prison. You never have any privacy. You never have any distance, except maybe when you can have exercise in the yard, you can go walk in a little piece of space by yourself. So against a disease like COVID-19, can you imagine the suffering? Can you imagine the feeling of futility? I am surely going to die. So we've been doing a lot on our Twitter about situations of prisons to call attention to citizens to contact the Bureau of Prisons when it's a federal prison, contact governors or Department of Corrections and states to be a voice for prisoners who can't cry out for themselves. Mm -hmm. And we've seen some, uh, some things happening in terms of, um, you know, uh, governors and other elected officials responding, right? We've seen where they've they've offered additional medical assistance or tried to reduce the, the population in prisons. We've also seen some actions related to capital punishment over the past few weeks. Um, I know you were tweeting uh, or in Instagramming, I can't remember which, or maybe both, about a situation in, tech in Texas. Can you tell us about uh, that? Well, here you have an interesting phenomenon. So I've been talking about death penalties, the ultimate social distance. So guess what? So in order to carry out an execution, you got to have at least 12 witnesses. And usually the witnessing chambers for an execution are very small. So you have at least 12 state witnesses. Then you usually have representatives of the victim's family. You have the press in there. And sometimes you may have the lawyers for the uh, executed one in there as well, or their spiritual advisor with them. And, uh, and so it breaks the COVID-19 thing of social distancing. There's too many people gathered in a group. So it it holds things. It's irony, just irony on top of irony, that because of the rules for COVID-19 and social distancing, you can't carry out executions for a while. It's totally, totally weird. And But God's way, compassion of maybe holding it off that you can't carry out these executions because you're you're breaking the rules on COVID-19. Isn't that weird? 
right. And and it it is weird. I mean, it it's uh you know there there have been some elements of this crisis that um, you know I think give us pause to think about some of the things that we're doing as a nation, right? How we treat people as a nation, uh, how we treat the most vulnerable as as a nation, how we treat uh, those who have the least voice, you know. And I mean, I think about the situation of uh, folks on death row or, or those who are in, in uh, the prison system and their capacity to, to, if they are in a situation where their, their inherent dignity is being violated, their capacity to voice that and to seek assistance or to seek the assistance of elected officials is so limited and oh, yeah. more so in this current environment, right? Like who can hear their voice? Always think, you know, the voice. Who can hear their voice? And imagine the helplessness if you're in a place, like I really believe in agency. I believe the spirit sparks us, inspires us. We roll up our sleeves and we do something. We take agency. We act. But imagine putting a human being in a situation where their voice can't be heard. They're helpless to help themselves. What do you do? We got a call from a woman whose brother was in um, uh, Oakdale. It's a federal prison in Louisiana. And they've been terrible. They've had in the COVID-19 there. They put everybody on lockdown. They cut off all communications. And so this woman saw what we had done on Twitter about and called, got in touch with me and just said, can you please help my brother? He's only in for 10 years. He did some kind of bank thing. It's a nonviolent crime. And we just want to get him out. He has a serious condition with his kidneys or something. And how can we do that? What can we do? So the families are in these dire straits too to try to get help for their loved ones. So sometimes just to join in there and be a voice can mm -hmm. be a help. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Um, I wanted to, we've got some more folks that have, that are here with us. We wanted to recognize them. See, normally, Sister Helen, if we, we do this at a, a bar or a pub, and we'll do a, a roll call. No, I did the one in New Orleans. Who's from a university? Who's from a high school? Who's this? Yeah, thing? yeah, but yeah. We kind of reclaim that that community element, right? So I want to say hi to Anna. She's uh, She went to Jesuit High School Portland, as well as Loyola Marymount in, in uh, Los Angeles. Hello to Courtney, who's a 2019 graduate of College of the Holy Cross. Um, welcome to Sarah, who's tuning in from Pennsylvania and is a St. Joe's class of 2017 grad. Guy is a teacher, a science teacher at St. Ignatius High School in Cleveland. Welcome to Brendan from Loyola Blakefield in Baltimore. Emily is an FJV and BCSTM grad watching from Erie, PA. Welcome. Uh, Greg is joining us. Uh, he's an alum of USF's Casa Bayanin program, tuning in from Portland. Thanks to Sister Helen. Um, uh, oh, here we go. So, uh, this is blessings on you. You're sharing Helen from your SSJ sister here in Springfield, Massachusetts. Also FJV. All right. Welcome. Great to have you. And uh, let's get one more in there. Elizabeth FJV watching with my classmates. Uh, FGV, a Wheeling Jesuit uh, alum, so, and they're all united watching via Zoom. So welcome, welcome to all of them. It's great. Welcome. You know, one of the, like, I think about this crisis and one of the, one of the things that um, it's allowed us to do is to kind of bring people, normally it's 30 or 40, 50 people at a bar and 
you know, San Francisco and another bar here and there coming together, great speakers, great community, but to be able to kind of bring people together, uh, you know, uh, nationally is exciting. So now I want to ask you in 2016, you uh, went to Rome and you, you visited uh, Pope Francis and uh, oh, there's a picture of it. Um, there you are. And uh, can you tell us about uh, that visit? Can you tell us about Pope Francis and kind of uh, how, um, how sure. his leadership uh, within the church has impacted your work uh, that you're doing here in the United States? Sure. Yeah. Can you go back to that picture uh, to just show what I was holding my hands? Can you see the guy behind the bars? That is Richard Glossop in Oklahoma. And in early January 2015, some friends of his got me on the phone with him. And here's what happened that phone call. And this is how things come into me. Sister Helen, uh, hi, I'm Richard. I know I didn't ask your permission. Please forgive me for that. But I think they're going to execute me soon. And I just put you down to be with me when I'm executed. Forgive me. I didn't ask your permission. I hope you don't mind. But would you be with me when I'm executed? That was the phone call. Put down the phone. There's a psalm that says, unseen, you answered me in thunder. I get in my bed that night. I bolt awake at two o'clock. I know I want to do uh, that. He's asked me to be with him and I will do that. There's no way I'm going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. But then I thought, I am not simply going to walk with this man. And he'd been saying he's innocent from the beginning. And now I really trust when people say they're innocent. I'm with my seventh and eighth person on death row and four of them out of the eight have been innocent that's how broken it is so anyway i bolt awake at two o'clock and i just go i have to do everything i know to do to keep this man from being executed so i called up susan sarandon i know she's really active she and robert redford had done a whole series called death row stories on cnn and then went to see Richard. We had a press conference. And then I got in touch with Pope Francis. And I just told him about the case. They got involved. They started getting on my webpage, check me out, check him out. And uh, it got to be really, really interesting because the prison, for a while, the Pope thought he might call Richard directly. We didn't know. And, but the prison, you know, there was going to be a delay to get him off a of death row to come to the warden's office to take the phone call from the Pope. And the warden's saying things like, well, I'll be glad to talk to Pope Francis, you know, while we're waiting for him to come. And head of the Department of Corrections, they all want to talk to Pope Francis. Then Richard wakes up one morning in his death row cell, and right outside his cell is a chair with a phone on it. And across the receiver of the phone, an old-fashioned phone, landline, it says, Pope. It was the Pope phone. In the end, the, the Pope, uh, it was not a phone call, but it was a direct call to the governor to help spare his life. It is the most unusual story in the world. He almost was killed, but because there was such world attention to his case, because the Pope had gotten involved in a whole number of people, like Richard Branson uh, took out uh, uh, full-page ads in Oklahoma newspapers, do not kill this man. You're going to be tainted in Oklahoma with an innocent person. Because the whole world was watching, they didn't 
Oklahoma didn't dare, dare kill Richard Glossom. The two people they had executed before Richard, because they'd been carte blanche to ex execute people in experimental ways with experimental drugs, had died grievous deaths with the wrong drug, and Oklahoma had lied about it. And they were about to kill Richard with this illicit drug, and then the whole world was in there. And minutes before his execution, he was saved. So when I went to see Pope Francis, that was all in 2015. In 2016, I brought Richard's letter with me to give to him to thank him with his picture there that, that you saw. And, and that was the main reason for my visit, to thank the Pope for speaking out on the death penalty and getting in there with Richard. So as you know, on August 2nd, 2018, Pope Francis changed the Catholic Catechism. Y'all, yeah. this is 1,600 years of dialogue to change the Catholic Catechism on the teaching of the death penalty. Because we had always allowed in the traditional teaching for the state to have the right to take life for crimes they, grieved, they uh, stated was so heinous. And it took away that power from the state. Now that is a lot of dialogue. And that's what happens in the church around social justice issues. Social issues, moral issues are not written in stone like dogmas, like Jesus is the son of God. Things change in morals. They change about slavery. They change about women getting the vote. And they change in about the death penalty. Hmm. And they're changing on other things too, like the gay question and all that, because the people... The people of God, the dialogue, the Holy Spirit's flapping her wings over the waters of chaos. Dialogue happens. People witness things. People influence each other. And we change things. Yeah. And it's, I mean, those are two great examples, right? Both one uh, that's very uh, tangible and human and one that speaks to, you know, this, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, and as you said. Yeah. She's working overtime, right? Uh, and sometimes it takes time, uh, but um, that's great. Let's let's take a little break. Uh, we want to. We need to say thanks to our sponsors. Um, so we'll do that, and then we'll come back to you in a second, Sister Helen. So take a, get a sip of, of scotch, and we'll be we'll be right back, right? Um, okay. And if you enjoy Solidarity and Tap, please consider giving a gift to sustain the work of the Ignatian Solidarity Network, and you can do that at ignatiansolidarity.net slash donate. And now let's get back to Sister Helen. We've got some uh, questions from the audience um, that uh, uh, different people have posed. We're gonna, we're gonna put this first one up on the screen. It's really big, uh, sorry about that. Um, it, it comes from Danielle Harris uh, and he asks, um, I saw someone I know post on Facebook today about how bad it was to be releasing prisoners due to the COVID crisis. I think people don't understand the public health benefits and overlook prisoners' humanity during this time. How can we best respond to our friends who say things like this in a way that is respectful and loving? Um, and thanks always to, to Helen for your amazing work and dedication. How, how do we respond to folks who, who speak maybe critically or, or really challenge the idea of, of compassion or humanity? Yeah, but first just understand where people are coming from. Everybody's scared of this COVID-19 thing. I mean, we, we don't have the best concerted leadership in this country to have the testing we need or what we have. And so there's a lot of chaos out there. 
and just to get in touch with people's fears. So of course you say, so what are you going to do? You're going to let out all the prisoners who are infected and then they're going to come out and infect us. So we got to teach them just a few things, some facts that got to understand about the system. First of all, you got to know that 420,000 guards and staff work in prisons and are going in and out of prisons and jails every day and going back to their families. And if we let prisoners get infected and, and we don't, maybe we don't care about them. Maybe we think they deserve what they get. But the guards going in and out are coming back to families and neighborhoods. So they're like vectors of the disease. We don't have a protection of prisoners that have COVID-19. There are no walls or bars that stop the virus. And if we don't have an incentive within us from just pure compassion, because we feel for prisoners, we need of self-preservation or just help of the whole community to realize we are interconnected with each other. The guidelines for releasing prisoners, you know, of what they call the, uh, well, the compassion release, is under strict, strict guidelines of they are released to their family or they are released to a place where they're going to be kept in quarantine and they are not a threat to us. The whole system is a threat to us because we have guards going in and out every day. And in jails where you have 740,000 people going into jail, a new person goes into jail every three seconds People stay in jail generally. You know, jail is before you go to trial and before you go to prison. Every 25 days, there's a revolving door of people coming out of the jail. So it behooves us just as a community, for the whole community, to take care of our prisoners and to help them get what they need because it's the health of all of us. So if you want to have an example of throwing us in to interdependence, this whole COVID thing is doing it with our people in jail and prisons. Maybe before we could just say, well, we're independent of them. They're there. We don't have to look at them. Let them, you know, they pay the price for the crime they did. But not anymore because it's porous. We affect each other. Yeah. And um, this idea this idea of interconnectedness, right? I think it's, it's really coming out in this pandemic, uh, whether it's, a sense of, of connectedness to someone who is um, in in prison in your in your own state, or or the ways that we've become connected to people around the world. Uh, our our you know your livelihood is caught up in my livelihood, and vice versa, right? And so how we treat each other is is hopefully we are coming to recognize that it's even more. It, it was always important, but hopefully we're going to recognize its importance. In, in the you know, and that just emphasizes, Chris, the importance of restorative justice over a system of pain and punishment in exile and separation. Mm. The more we can restore people. I mean, most of the people I know in prison had the most abused childhood you can imagine. They were subjected to violence. One day they wreaked that violence on an innocent person. But we need to be healing. We need to be restoring people and not just punishing and exiling people. Sure. Yeah. We have another question. This one comes from Bree. She's a teacher at Gilmore Academy in Cleveland. She says, um, how, can you, uh, how can young people most effectively mobilize to advocate for injustices during COVID, especially in the case of the imprisoned and immigrant communities? And I know you've 
you've um, you know kind of publicly spoken out uh, through social media about some of the interconnections between the way uh, we are treating uh, immigrants, asylum seekers, and and um, and things like that. But where where do you see young people? Fit? I mean, you speak you know typically in a, in a year when you're on the road, you speak to young people constantly. What what's the message you give them about how they can engage in 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 standing? Right. I see young people as the forefront of leadership and a lot of things happening in our society. Look at Greta Thunman on the whole climate thing. Look at the students at Parkland where they had the shooter come in and kill their classmates right next to them. And they take a big stand on, on ending gun violence in the United States. Young people are very powerful. And I've found over the years that when young people write letters to congressmen and people in political office, politicians like to be liked by young people. They like to have young people. So your voice is very, very important. So whether it's immigrants you want to speak up for, or whether it's the elderly in a nursing home in your neighborhood that you want to speak up, but speak up. And you know what I've found for a long time? I say all this in River of Fire. It took me a long time in my 40s to wake up for I connected the gospel of Jesus with doing justice. It was more private religion, close to Jesus, praying for the ills of the world, but not rolling up my sleeves and not getting in there. And I found out that when I began to take action, one act, and I just pulled on that rope, the life flowed through me. What gives us hope is when we get involved in action, no matter how small the act, but we join in a community of people and that concerted effort of community, voices are raised and change can happen. And when you consider people having no voice and you say, I'll be the voice. And maybe you feel weak. Maybe you feel powerless, but the moral imperative that you will not be silent in the wake of this, but that you will join your voice for the right thing. And maybe you feel like it's just a little bit, but God uses that. And it's the concert and community and voices are raised and change happens. So get in there and do something, some action. That's great. Thanks, and I really appreciate you kind of speaking to the idea of of, of hope. And and you know, I, I think a lot about where do we find hope in the reality of this this pandemic. Um, you know, and I think your point that uh, it, it can be very uh, debilitating to think about um, the limitations that social distancing and stay in place have. But I I think we're we're going to come uh, through this finding um, new ways of being people of solidarity, uh, standing with those on the margins. And it, it'll be different than what we've been doing, you know, but, yeah. but we're gonna find we're gonna find new ways to uh, to to live out a commitment to solidarity, to live out a, a commitment to standing with um, our brothers and sisters. And Chris, don't you think that it's like forcing us to a deeper level of reflection? People are in their house. They can't get out. What do you do? It's just like a call to make a retreat. It's a call to read. It's a call to reflection, to water the roots of our spirituality. So, And when we go deep, then God's fire can, can be in us. And then when we act, it's more 
Uh, I love the part of Isaiah 55 where it says that God says, let snow fall and the snow falls. And God says, let it rain. God's word never returns to God void. And I think of all the empty, useless, chattering words I've said that didn't amount to anything. But to say that word, and it's kind of like when we get congealed in our soul and we feel that commitment and we we can speak out and we always need to to nourish that with reflection. So it's a good time for reflection and have the contemplative part of us fed as well during this time. Mm, I like that. I like that. It's very Ignatian. That's good. Um, we just, I wanted a couple shout outs uh, from folks and from some uh, sisters. So this is uh, Megan says, hello from the Sisters of Divine Providence in San, San Antonio, Texas. Mm. Sister, Sister Mary Alice uh, Collar says, I first heard of Helen from Julie Kramer when I was volunteering at the Juvenile Intense Center in Detroit, 1994. Uh, so welcome to Sister Mary Alice. We're glad you're here uh, with us. Um, and uh, Karen had a question. How do we support people transitioning out of incarceration in this time? That transition is hard enough to struggle without a, out a pandemic. And you talked about, you know, some of the ways that people are coming out of, out of the prison system right now. They're going with their families. They're going into places where, uh, you know, they'll be, have support. But how, how can we, what are ways, when you, what are ways to support people coming out of, out of uh, the prison system? You know, one of the greatest needs of our society is halfway houses and places for people after they get out of prison. We don't have. See, because it's such a pain and punishment system, we don't even think of what happens when people get out. And that needs to be expressed in a lot of different ways. And this is this is the gospel of Catholic worker. This is the gospel of people getting in the scene and just say, where do people go? So it's working in your diocese. It's working in your parishes. It's working with your churches. What would it be like if churches would be welcomers to people getting out of prison to help them, to have a place to stay, to get a job? And I've seen places around this country. There's one in Eugene, Oregon. The guy who started it, he got thrown in prison for bank robbery, came out, he had nothing, and he started something. And we may say, oh, my goodness, we've got to build this thing from scratch. But you just start with small steps. And our parishes, what if they were hospitality places where we begin to build something where prisoners can have a welcome when they come out? And uh, it's really, really important to do. It's important for the COVID-19 so now we, one of the things of COVID-19, it is so cataclysmic. It is throwing up in the air through a volcano, every system, education, the economy, healthcare, employment, and the whole prison thing as well. So crisis like this can also give us a chance to reconfigure our society in a new way. Um, you know, uh, the words from scripture, see, I am doing something new. Uh, or as they say in the African-American community, God is right and straight with crooked lines. And we got a lot of crooked lines right now. And then there's us, a little bitty us, but with that blazing Holy Spirit in our hearts to do something. So it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for change. Amen to that. Um, 
Sister Al, I think we have time for one more question. It comes from uh, Brandon, uh, who uh, teaches at Loyola Blakefield, which is in Baltimore. He says, Sister Helen, where were you last surprised by God? Would you believe COVID-19? Because <laughs> I was asking God, I just said, we are really in dire straits in this country with the polarization, with the rise in white supremacy, with top leadership that is just abysmal in this country. And I knew that story of Sennacherib in the Bible where the Israelites were camped across the river and Sennacherib, the uh, huge Babylonian leader with all this power, the campfires of Sennacherib's army were as numerous as the stars in the sky. That poor little Israelites could look across that river and we are going to be decimated in the morning. And they prayed. And that night, an angel of the Lord went through the camp of Sennacherib and busted everything to smithereens. I said to God, I said, you know, we need something big. Well, I mean, I didn't think it was going to be this big. And the big surprise for me, as I said in the beginning, was it took me off the road. I have to be on the road. I have a moral imperative to say what I've witnessed with the death penalty and these people I've seen executed. And it's what's behind the fire in my heart. But And I have to stay on the road. But then this big thing happened and it was taken from me. So now it's a chance for to plant flowers and to write another book and to be reflective and to be able to write letters, more letters to my prisoners and keep up with prisoners. That's my latest biggest surprise. Hmm. That's great. And I'm sure that there will be more surprises every day. You um, can bank on it, Chris. Bank on it, exactly. Well, this has been uh, wonderful to spend time with you. And we're just so grateful uh, that you, you made time uh, for us and uh, for your continued work, uh, kind of re recalibrating and retooling in the midst of, of this crisis. And we're glad you're, you're, you're getting out via Zoom and talking with folks no matter what. And, um, and, for and your, Chris, I just want yeah. to invite people to go to sisterhelen.org because we yeah. got Facebook and Twitter and all. And, Instagram. And, you're on Instagram. Yeah, yeah we got everything. And, uh, and we also about Manuel Ortiz, the man I've been accompanying. He's been on death row in Louisiana 29 years, and he's innocent. And so we have a little thing for him, and he loves letters from you. He's so brave. He's he's from El Salvador. He's just so brave. And I'm accompanying him now, and be love to have you in there with us for him. Great. And we just shared that that uh, the link to sisterhelen.org on on Facebook, so folks can make sure to check that out uh, tonight. And um, again, great to great to be with you. Great to, to share a drink. Uh, cheers one more time. Cheers one more time. There we go. Cheers in the and, Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit, and and we'll have to find a way uh, to get you back to the Ignatian Family Teaching for Justice very very soon. Uh, yes, so, I'll yep. be delighted. I love All the right. Ignatian Solidarity. Y'all take care. All right, thanks. Thanks, Sister Helen. Before we finish up, we want to tell you about uh, upcoming uh, Solidarity on Tap events happening in the next couple of weeks. Uh, next Wednesday, May 13th, we'll welcome Tom Shaboya, the president of Jesuit Volunteer Corps, to learn about uh, what is happening with JVC across the country and the world. And uh, the following week, we'll be welcomed by Danielle uh, Vea. Danielle is the Director of Social Cohesion and Reconciliation for Jesuit Refugee Service International, 
She has a recent book that was published. She just did a book tour across the United States with. So we'll be excited to talk with her about that book and the stories of refugees from across the world. Um, again, don't worry if you if you like this or you want to share it. This will be this is recorded. Uh, just go to our YouTube uh, page. That's YouTube.com/IgnatianSolidarity or our Facebook page. You can find it either place and, and uh, share it widely. Thanks so much for being with us tonight uh, for this uh, special edition of Virtual Solidarity on Tap. And we'll see you next week. Have a great week.